The Permian Basin is an abundant oil and gas producing area. Already one of the world's leading oil producing regions, the area in West Texas and Southeastern New Mexico could nearly double crude oil production by the year 2023. But who are the leaders behind this economic powerhouse? And what is their story? This is Permian Perspective. I'm your host, Krista Escamilla. Sponsored by Baker Hughes, a GE company inventing smarter ways to bring energy to the world. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Permian Perspective. It's so nice to be spending this time with all of you. I appreciate you choosing our podcast. I'm sitting here today in West Texas with economist Dr. Ray Perryman, who is also a consultant for Priority Midland. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Krista. I am so looking forward to our interview. It's going to be a lot of fun. We wanted, before we get into it and jump into our interview, I ask all of you at home to, or in your car, wherever you're listening, or in your office, we want to ask you to please take a few minutes to leave a review in iTunes. I cannot thank you enough for doing this. We are so appreciative of the reviews we've received so far, and for Apple choosing Permian Perspective to be on their new and noteworthy list. That is just so exciting. So we want to say a very special thanks to Jim, who left this five-star review. He said, I am really enjoying hearing all the stories from those living in West Texas. Not only are the stories good and inspiring, but I feel I have learned something every single episode. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Jim. We will keep up that good work and we appreciate you for leaving that review. All right, Dr. Perriman, where should we start? The beginning? Might as well. Okay. (laughs) How did did you get in this crazy oil and gas industry world? (laughs) Well, that's a a fairly long story. I'll try to tell a quick version of it. When I was a young economist and and a young professor at Baylor University many, many years ago, our dean asked me to to build an economic model of Texas. Those were kind of new and fashionable at the time. And and so I did. And so we, we happened to release our first forecast in January of 1982. And for those of you who've been around oil and gas long enough, no, that was kind of a, a time when some things were starting to happen that weren't so good in right. the industry. And our first forecast, I was a young academic, so I was much more focused on the mathematics and was the model consistent, did it converge and all those crazy things. But it, it actually showed the oil and gas industry going down some. And I didn't really pay that much attention to it because I was more interested in getting the numbers out the door and the analytics than I was the actual numbers. And that was long before I knew people in the industry or anything else. And so I, we released the numbers. And then about three months later, someone at Texas Monthly wrote an article and called me the guy that predicted the oil bust. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, that, so that started sort of the whole thing of my uh, 40 plus years or, or so messing with this industry. And you said, I was really just crunching the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. I was totally surprised. And it's led to that and a few other fortuitous events have led to a, a long career as an economic consultant. And I've had a whole lot of fun doing it. Well, first of all, sick them. So uh, we we also want to say, you know, just thank you for your perspective over the years. As I've been here 20 years, you are well respected in not only West Texas, but in, in the world on your perspective of what's happening and looking at those numbers. I have to say, when I came to do this interview, I asked a couple of friends, hey, what kind of questions do you want me to ask? And the number one was, what's oil going to do? <laughs> So I have to ask it, Dr. Perryman, what do you feel is going to happen? Of course, of course. And obviously there's a lot going on now. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know exactly what oil is going to do. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. But I think the major answer I would give to that and the most important answer is it matters a lot less than it used to. Mm. Because used to the price of oil could change four or five dollars. And, you know, this would be a difference in a boom and a bust. Right. Uh, and, and, And the whole industry begins to shut down. Now we're in a phase where 
the cost has gone down so much. I mean, literally in the last couple of years, the, the average cost of getting a barrel of fracked oil out into the market, and the price it makes sense, has dropped from about $70 to less than $50, and it's still dropping. And what that means is, sure, you'll make more money at 80 than you will at 50, but you're still making money at 50. Right. And so they continue to drill and, and they continue to, they develop longer term cycles and drilling programs. You have companies out here now who have leased hundreds of thousands of acres and have multi-decade leasing programs and drilling programs that aren't going to go away every time the market fluctuates a little bit. So at this point in time, it, it seems to be reasonably stable at the moment about where it is, but there's always, there's turmoil in the Middle East, there's term, turmoil in Latin America, there's turmoil in, in Russia. There's a lot of things that could disrupt things in the marketplace, but and a lot going on. The global economy is slowing a little bit. But the main thing I would say is it certainly still matters to the oil and gas industry, but it matters a lot less than it used to. Okay. So the crystal ball isn't saying what number it's going to go to? or <laughs> Well, you know, you, you can always throw those out there. I mean, I think long-term, the price of oil is going to trend upward simply because long-term, the world is going to desperately need this source of energy. Now we're going to have to burn it cleaner. We're going to have to pay attention to the climate and all those other things that go along with it. But the world is going to need oil because the part of the world that's growing is the emerging part of the world. And right now, Half the world, which is basically the half other than the United States, Europe, and Japan, because we're basically half the world economy. If you take us out and and look at all the emerging countries, that's where 75% of the growth is coming in that 50% of the world. And that's the part of the world that's now becoming bigger energy consumers because they're starting to manufacture things. They're going through their industrial revolution, so to speak. And they're also developing a middle class that, that, that can afford to own automobiles. And there's all these things that are happening that are truly driving global demand in a way we haven't seen in quite sometime. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about how you got involved with Priority Midland and what Priority Midland is. Well, the way I got involved was like I get involved in in most things in my life. I answered the phone (laughs) and uh, (laughs) someone called me and asked me to get involved. And at first I was asked to help with the, with the sort of the launch event where, where, where Mayor Morales and General General Stanley McChrystal and myself spoke and and your good friend Tatum Hubbard hosted it. And we had a big event uh, out at the Performing Arts Center to sort of launch. And there I just kind of gave a history the Permian Basin itself, the oil and gas industry, what had changed and what to look forward to all in a very short period of time. And in the course of preparing for that, we started to have conversations and begin to say, you know, we really need numbers to help us understand what does this mean for us? What does it mean in terms of population, employment, schools, roads, housing, all of those things? And so then we were asked to come on and do a, a fairly major uh, study, which we've just been releasing here over the last couple of weeks, that uh, that dealt with a lot of the issues that come with the growth, because it's an enormous opportunity. It's truly one of the major global events of this century. It's what's happening with energy right now and what's happening right here in this region. But along with all that opportunity comes a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Because as I said, now that people are, now that the price is, is, doesn't matter as much as it used to, the guy who used to you know, work 10 days on, 10 days off, or work a week, go home for the weekend, come back, that sort of thing, there's a lot of that still going on. If they think they're going to have a pretty stable job for 10 or 15 years or more, then it starts to make sense. Maybe I want to move my family out here. Right. And that means we have to have quality schools. We have to have the infrastructure. We have to have the housing. And so a lot of things start to change when you start looking at the world from that perspective. And so we were asked to kind of help put together those numbers. And that's, that's been a big push for the past few months. What did you find in that study? 
Well, basically what we found was there's a lot of work to be done, obviously. <laughs> and it's understandable. I mean, we've literally, the first oil well was drilled out here in 1920. So we've literally had a century of oil production. It's always been boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. And in that environment, you develop a culture where you don't build roads to accommodate the boom because they'll be empty in the bust. You don't build schools to accommodate the boom because they'll, they'll be empty in, in, in the bust. I mean, there's, so you develop that mentality of sort of, trying to hit a little bit sort of a middle ground and you always either probably have a little bit too much or a little bit or not enough. And now that that culture and that philosophy of the whole industry is changing, there's some work to be done. And what we help do is try to identify some of that. And then it's up to the the individuals in Midland as well as the other communities around here to make the decisions. You know, how much of that are they willing to do? Do they want to do? Because as I've told everybody over there, the one thing we're not doing right now, we're not determining whether or not the oil is coming out of the ground. Right. The oil is coming out (laughs) of the ground. (laughs) And, And we're determining what our community is going to look like in 10 or 15 years as the oil comes out of the ground. And so, and that's the decision-making process that will take place in Midland and the other communities around the basin over the next few years. Was there anything surprising in the study? Oh, there were a few things. You know, I, I've been looking at numbers, and this, this tells you something about my social life, but I've probably looked at hundreds of thousands of, of numbers on average every day for the last 40-plus years. So it, not, not a lot of numbers surprised me, I'll say that. I think if there was one number that surprised me, though, it was that of all the economic output that's generated by the energy sector that stays in the Permian Basin, obviously a lot of it goes off to shareholders and folks in, in other places, but all of it that stays in, in the Permian Basin, 85% of those, of those dollars end up in the Midland economy. Mm. And that's because it's where the headquarters are, it's, you know, and, and a lot of the the support industry and that sort of thing. So that was that was that was the one number, as far as a number that jumped out at me. That was one that jumped out at me. Looking at the study and on your website, I found that Midland residents have the second highest personal income in the entire United States. That's a startling statistic. So this makes Midland, you know, an excellent place for people to call home. How does the cost of living compare to other parts of the country? Well, it's, right now it's higher because, <laughs> because housing is higher. Obviously, lodging is higher if you're trying to stay out here. And that's, that it works its way through the economy to the price of, of food and a lot of other things. And the thing I, I, would, I would caution about is it's, it, Midland is one of the highest per capita income communities anywhere. And, that's, and that, that's a very, very good thing. But it's not equally distributed. It's not universally distributed. Obviously, the people who own the oil and gas resources – really make really raise that number a lot. And you still have, although the poverty rates are lower in Midland than they are other places, you have a lot of people who are who are not benefiting directly from the oil and gas situation. And that does create some issues. And you know, for, for a very good example, school teachers. Right. There's a big shortage of school teachers out in the Permian Basin, including the Midland area. And a lot of it is, you know, that cost of housing has gone up dramatically. Our the typical typical apartment rent in Midland's fifty percent above the state average. Oof. You know, the, the teacher salaries are not fifty percent above the state average. Right. And so and so you start having that, you know, it starts to squeeze your, your public service workers, your policemen, your firemen, your, your school teachers, mm-hmm. and a lot of people that will really struggle in the economy like this because they don't, in, in essence, get a raise every time, every time we produce more oil. You know, right. That's not, that's not uh, what they're tied to. So, so while it's a wonderful thing and it gives us a lot of resources to work with in order to do some things, you do have to keep that in perspective and say, yes, indeed, that's a true statement. But that, you know, that doesn't mean our school teachers are the second highest paid school teachers in, in the country or our firemen are the second highest paid firemen in the country. I mean, you have, to, you have to keep those things in perspective. That's a good point. And so now that we have the study, we have Priority Midland, we have another organization, that the Permian Strategic Partnership, that is working on these, these four key areas that, that you mentioned. How do we go about it now? How do we fix those problems? How do we get apartments that, that are 
able, you know, that our teachers are able to live in, that the law enforcement's able to live in? What do we do? Well, it's going to take a massive effort. It's going to take a community effort. And I think as much as anything right now, what's taking place is the community decision-making process. You know, what does the community want to do? I mean, obviously, in order to, to support all of this, we're going to have to build some schools. We're going to have to build some infrastructure. We're going to have to encourage and incentivize the development of the type of housing that's needed. And that involves infrastructure, you know, extending water and sewer lines and things of that nature that have to occur, transportation nodes that are workable. So there's a, there's a lot of things that need to happen right now. And I think the wonderful thing about Priority Midland is that it has started that conversation. It's gotten hundreds of people involved in thinking about the community in the future and where it needs to be. And the community not only Midland, but the other communities in the in the Permian Basin, can make whatever decisions they choose to make in that regard. You know, Odessa's looking at some initiatives, Andrews, Kermit, there, there's a big one going on down in Pecos. I mean, there's, you know, all over, the, all over the region, people are having to come together and say, you know, how much do we want to invest in this? How much, you know, what portion of this do we want to try to attract? How much of it are we going to leave like it's like it's always been? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a conversation that has to take place. I think Permian Strategic Partners is, has basically said, you know, we're a, the oil and gas industry. We pool some resources here. If you bring us situations that, that are workable, that can really move the needle on some of these things, we're potentially willing to, to invest and be a partner in that. And that, that really helps because it's going to take some public and private resources to do this. It's going to take some cooperation and among governmental entities because, you know, like right now, I suspect every, virtually every entity in this region would love to have a bond election and have it pass in the next right. election. They can't all do it at once. So, right. so priorities have to be assigned. And that's the process that's taking place now, taking the information that we provided and the information they've gleaned from a lot of information, getting a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions, and bring all that together into a decision-making process and a prioritization process. You mentioned infrastructure and roads. And as you know, you've lived out here, is it 40 40- Years? Uh, 27. Oh, sorry. I I don't know where I got Since I married the mayor of Odessa, (laughs) I've lived out here. A wonderful, (laughs) wonderful lady, Lorraine. We need to give Lorraine a a shout out. She is just incredible. And so you've been here 27 years. You have have seen the roads. You've seen the, just the wear and tear. Right. On on that. How do you, how do we fix that in particular? I, I know there's so many issues we could talk about right now, but let's mention that one because I think it's an important one. I heard a statistic the other day of how many truck trips it takes to service a rig, and I was just blown away. Right. Well, that was one of our numbers. Literally, for a typical whale, 1,200 truck trips wow. uh, to drill it, and then 300 a year to maintain it as long as it's in existence. And and, and, and these these are you know heavy trucks hauling water, hauling, hauling sand. I mean, they put a lot of wear and tear on the roads. In terms of how you fix I mean, obviously, it takes resources. I mean, and, you know, the, the federal government has a highway program. The state government has a highway program. But we are probably not going to rise to the top of their priority list because quite often they're looking at the most congested areas in the country, and that's your large urban centers. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, we're not, you know, we don't always percolate to the top of those lists, although we're coming up some from where we have been in the past. And so it's going to take, you know, the regional mobility authorities, the cities, the counties coming together, looking at the ones they're responsible for and making some investments. I mean, you know, one, of the, one of the things we can't get around is a lot of the things that need to happen are not free. I mean, right. you know, people have to be willing to, in some cases, tax themselves, in some ta- cases, do some creative things with, with financing and with public and private partnerships and things like that, be willing to think out of the box a bit. But all of the issues we're talking about really have to be addressed with, with some financial commitment. And unfortunately, 
And this is just the reality of it. I constantly get asked, which one's most important? Which one's most important? I was going to ask you that one. I'm, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'll go ahead and answer it. Yes, okay. please. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, if you ask me about any community, what's the most important thing in the next 20 years, I'm going to say education. Whatever, whatever the community is, whatever the circumstance, because what we're doing with our workforce is so important, particularly given all the demographic changes that are taking place and the challenges that brings. And that's certainly no exception here. But when you look at the situation confronting the Permian Basin right now, Literally, all of these problems have to be tackled simultaneously, because if you build housing and don't build roads, you just create more congestion. If you build roads and don't build housing, you don't have the workforce you need, and so you're bringing people in, still traveling from the outside, still generating more congestion. You know, if you don't have good schools, good parks, and other amenities, and a good healthcare system, you're not going to attract and keep the kind of workers that you want. So there's it all ties together here. But clearly, right now, I would say, as far as the most immediate concern that I'm hearing throughout the Permian Basin and is housing, followed very closely by infrastructure. Let's talk about population. Sure. I know you have a prediction of what the population will be. Sure. What is that? Well, first of all, let, let me emphasize something. Our projections that we did in this study are a little bit different than the ones we normally do. We, we have big forecasting models and do forecasts for thousands of companies all over the world. But these are aspirational forecasts. That is, what's it going to look like if indeed we do make some of these investments? And with that, you, you could easily see the, the population of the region, the, the Permian Basin region, going up by 130,000, 140,000 people between now and 2030. That, that's a huge number to absorb in an area this size. So it, it, there can be a lot of population growth. But that assumes that Midland and Odessa and Andrews and Kermit and Pecos and all, and all these other places are indeed doing the things to accommodate these people. Because again, the, the oil is going to come out of the ground. The question is, are you going to have people who come in and live in hotels and live in man camps and, and one day on, one day off, don't relocate their families and that sort of thing? Are you going to develop more livable communities and attract some of these people as, <coughs> pardon me, as permanent residents and as, as citizens? What about the 12-month outlook uh, for activity? Do you feel like it's going to be stronger, stay where we're at? Well, over the next 12 months, you know, you, you've obviously seen the price of oil come down some recently, mm -hmm. and that, that does slow things down a little bit. And when I say slow things down, I mean slow the rate of growth, okay? And we're not talking about any, anything else. But oil production, it's just unbelievable here. I mean, literally back for 35 years, starting, starting in, in 1973, oil production fell every year to 2008. It fell from 2.2 million barrels a day to 700,000. A drop wow. down to two-thirds. This area thought it was running out of oil. Mm -hmm. Then the new technologies come along. The prices get lower. The export opportunities increase. All of this kind of perfect storm of seven or eight things that need to happen at once all happened. And between 20, 2008 2016, it went back up from the 700,000 over 2 million again. Then it went within two years to over 3 million. Then within one year to over 4 million. Oh, wow. So, I mean, we're, we're producing twice as much as we ever did before. And any boom bust or anything in the past century, we're producing twice as much oil as we ever did before, and the number keeps going up. So oil production is, is, is going to continue to, to, to trend upward, but the pace of that will obviously depend on how many, how many new wells are drilled and that sort of thing, and that will fluctuate some depending on the price. The point I was making earlier is it's not going to shut down because the price is, is, is at a certain level. Right now, the price is in the mid to high 50s most days. That's, that's enough for many of the major operators to continue to earn profits. It makes sense to continue to drill and produce. I have I asked a number of oil and gas folks recently, what's your price? Because it depends on when you got your leases, how deep you have to go, all sorts of things affect costs. I got one answer that was that was sixty. That's not a good answer, right? Okay. <laughs> I got one that was that was twenty two. 
Okay. That's an unbelievable answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. Uh, the other four were in the 40s. And so I think, you know, the consensus is the median for most producers now is somewhere in the 40s. And some of them have announced to the public market, some very big companies, including ExxonMobil, have made those announcements. You know, when a public company does that, they have to say it's a forward-looking statement and the SEC is involved and all these things. They've said they think that they'll get that number under 20 in the next 10 years. So it's just a remarkable situation uh, where you continue to see production increase, but probably not quite as rapidly over the next 12 months as you've seen over the, say, the past two years, I, because it, it's, it's very difficult to continue to achieve that growth rate just on, as a, from a practical perspective. I mean, there, I'm not sure there's enough rigs to do that. Right. <laughs> what do you see being the biggest challenges for growth? Well, I think, I think the biggest challenges for the industry right now, there's a lot of capacity constraints, enough infrastructure at the ports to, to get to, to ship things. And we're improving that. You know, we, we can now get bigger ships through the Panama Canal to ship crude or LNG or, or whatever the case may be, refined products. We can now ship, and they are shipping to Asia through the canal with bigger ships. But the ports themselves are going through some deepening and widening projects. That takes time. More storage more pipeline capacity right now. We see that all the time. Some people are actually hauling it to the Gulf Coast in trucks right now. Mm -hmm. There's some talk about the potential to use the port in Mexico at Topolobampo with a pipeline system. There's already sort of some infrastructure that goes from some of the southern Delaware Basin, which is where most of the oil is being produced right now, down to Presidio and then and then hook into some of the pipelines into Mexico. That's being discussed. New pipelines are under construction, coming online every day. But the biggest constraint right now is simply the infrastructure is not yet there to keep up with this because it's happened so quickly. Mm-hmm. G- give you a simple example. The, every year, the Department of Energy issues their annual energy outlook, and everybody in the industry reads it and de- devours it. And reacts. And, and reacts, right. exactly. <laughs> Two years ago, they made the statement that by, by 2025, that the U.S. would be a net exporter of oil in, in all ways. That Two years ago, they made that statement. Mm-hmm. A year ago, they issued their report, and they said, they said in 2022, <laughs> we'll be a net exporter <laughs> of oil. This year, they issued their statement, and they said in 2020, We'll wow. be a net export of oil. And guess what? We are. So, wow. <laughs> so, so, so it's, and all that said, it's happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize is of the new oil that's being produced, it's adding to these numbers, two thirds of it is coming from right here. It's truly an amazing, globally significant phenomenon. It really is. It's something we've never seen before. It's, it's something that, that no one's ever seen before. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, I said when I gave the speech in, back in February to the launch event, I said, you know, I think when they write the history of this century, century from now, the three events they're going to talk about in the first 20 years are 9-11, the mapping of the human genome, and what's happening with the energy industry right now with this being the epicenter. I mean, I think it's wow. that significant to the world. It's totally changing things. I mean, very good example, five, six years ago, Nigeria was delivering a million barrels of oil a day to the port of Houston. Mm-hmm. Today they're delivering zero. Oh wow! Because our oil is just like their oil, same basic sulfur comp- content, viscousness, all those characteristics. So everybody's using our oil now. So I mean, I mean, it's it's totally changed the global marketplace. I mean, ten years ago, I had clients who were spending billions of dollars to build plants on the Gulf Coast to import liquefied natural gas. Those same clients on those same pieces of ground today are spending billions of dollars building plants to export natural gas. Wow, what now, a difference. Now, what that means is yeah. you, you, you just did it with your fingers, a complete 180 mm-hmm. of the energy industry in less than a decade. I mean, it's something that, that the world has never absorbed anything like this before. Wow, that, it's unbelievable. It, it truly is. It's, it's fascinating. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears just a tiny okay, sure, bit. absolutely. I, w- I want to hear about you because I think everybody wants to read whatever you're reading. <laughs> 
want to know what you know. Oh, I doubt that know. very seriously. <laughs> so, I doubt that very, very seriously. Can you tell me, do you have any favorite books or podcasts or periodicals that you listen to or, or <laughs> okay. read daily? Oh, gosh, favorite book. Wow. You're not, you're not, this is not something you, you will probably, that your readers will want to rush out and read, but you can probably tell I have a little bit of an academic bent and a technical bent and a quantitative bent about me and that sort of thing. And, and you could add philosophy and art and a lot of other things to that. But if you're sitting in my, you're sitting right now in, in my library, and if you look right across there, you'll see, you'll see a quote from Rene Descartes carved in the wall that says, I am thinking, therefore I am, which is the correct translation. Most people say, I think, therefore I am. Oh. But, but my favorite, but he was, he, he was kind of the founder of the modern philosophy that gave rise to Western civilization. So I would say my favorite book is probably Descartes' Medica- Meditations on First Philosophy, which was written in the 1640s. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I need to read that. <laughs> At least it'll give me a head start. It's pretty start. pedantic, but it's fascinating. <laughs> to know what you know. Uh, what, what about what about daily periodicals on the oil and gas business? Because I know you know a lot of our listeners they are they're deep in it every single day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And sometimes it's nice to hear what someone else is. is well, yeah, at. and, and I, I really don't have a good answer for that because the bottom line is on that. I think the fair way to say it is I read everything, and I have and I have people who in, on my staff who who read and summarize other things for me to read. So, I mean, I really try to absorb everything I can possibly absorb. And fortunately, at this stage of my life, unlike back when I did that first forecast back in the early <laughs> 80s, fortunately, at this stage of my life, I'm able to talk to everybody around the world in the industry and that sort of thing and have access to, to a lot of information throughout the supply chain of energy just by talking to people. And that's something I would encourage people to do as well, is whatever you're reading talk to the people in the industry and get a sense from them of what's going on because they always have insights that are very, that are very, very useful in, in all our forecasting, whether it's energy or any other field. Uh, you know, I always find that I get, you know, we have all the technical stuff that help that, that generates numbers, but before you release those numbers, you better talk to people in the field and see what's going on. And that's something we do across the board. So that's something else I would encourage people to do. They're interested in the energy industry is talk to people in the energy industry. Good advice. You've seen the ups and downs of oil and gas through the years. How right. have you dealt with it as a businessman? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in an economic consulting company, and, and we, oil is, is a part of what we do, but it's by no means the only thing we do. And I'm, I'm very fortunate in some ways. I tell people, you know, with my business, it doesn't matter a whole lot whether it's going up or down. What would absolutely kill me is certainty. Mm. <laughs> and we haven't seen a lot of that in the last 40 years, no. and we're certainly not seeing a lot of it right now. So uh, so, uh, so my business, I, I suppose, is a little bit different. But I do think, obviously, I've been very, very involved with the energy industry for a long time. You know, the people who are cost-efficient, and who, are, who recognize that, that this comes and goes and that sort of thing have been the ones who have been successful and have, been, have had staying power. The folks who, who understand that that's the very nature of the, of the business. Now, again, that's changing, again, in the sense that it's no longer, you know, I'm doing great or I'm bankrupt. But again, you'll earn a lot more money at $80 a barrel than you will at $50. Great point. <laughs> Do you have a business tool that you've used over the years that has really helped you and your team? Oh, wow. I wish I could say I did. You know, I, I joked earlier, and it's really not a joke about answering the phone. I feel like uh, my career started on a coin flip, and that's an absolutely true statement. <laughs> and most of the major things I've been able to do, and I've been blessed to do so many great things in so many different areas all over the world for so long, virtually every one of them has come about uh, because I answered the phone. And any credit I've ever gotten for coming up with some new idea or some new model or some new academic thing or whatever the case may be, and I've been blessed in that area. It's never been because I was sitting down thinking about that subject. It's because someone had a problem for me to solve, and that was a roadblock to solving the problem. That's just how my mind works. And so I I guess, 
you know, about the only thing I could say is, you know, always be open to different ways to do things and, and don't let the fact that it looks hard or it looks like nobody's ever done it before, don't let that stop you. Because uh, if you just kind of sit down for a while and, and think about it from the context of I'm here, I need to get over there, you'll figure out a way to do it. Good advice. That coin flip, was it heads or tails? Well, actually, I don't, I don't even, I don't even remember because it was what it literally was 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 I was a I was a college student from a very small town in rural East Texas, very much hick, hadn't been anywhere, hadn't done anything, never been on an airplane. First one in my family to finish high school, and I was pretty good at math in high school, and you know, throughout. So I said, well, I majored in math because I'm sure I can make a living. Right. And I get I get to Baylor as an undergraduate student, and I look at the curriculum for a BS in math. And you have to take something in, in either – you have to take 15 hours of either chemistry, physics, biology, psychology, economics, or geology. And I, I was not a science fan at the time. I later became an avid science fan, but I, I wasn't a fan. I'd placed out of all the intro science courses, so I was going to take something really hard. So I said, well, that leaves economics and psychology. And so I flipped a coin. I can't remember whether I said heads is psychology and tails economics. I don't remember. But anyway, it came up on the economics side. And so I took my first economics class. If you have 30 more seconds to, to finish that story, kind of Absolutely. Uh, another funny thing that happened. So then I, I, I'm in economics. It so happens there's a big, you know, big, huge auditorium principals class. I'm in principals of economics class. And it, by, and it was being taught by the new department chairman. And it just so happened that that was the first test I took in college. Of all the classes I had, that one was the first test. Wow. And, of course, again, I'm this kid from a small town, don't know anything. And after the test, a couple of days later, the before they pass the test back, the, the department chairman, who doesn't know me from Adam, looks at his seating chart and says, Mr. Perryman, would you come to my office? And I didn't think that was a good thing. Right. You know? Usually the heart just stops. <laughs> yeah, no, normally, you don't. Know that I, I assumed he was saying, you know, kid, you, you don't really don't belong here. Yeah. I assumed that's what he was saying. And he literally walked in and, and he said, I'm projecting you can finish your PhD by this year. I'm offering you a job right now. Here's the salary. What do you say? So, wow. <laughs> so that's, that's what incredible. got me to. And I, and I continued. I got a degree in mathematics and went to Rice and got a degree in economics and came back But it's and started my career at Baylor. So it, it's it's been a great ride. But I can say it's all... I really don't have a, I wish I could give you a business plan or something for it, but it's all been pretty much happenstance. All on a coin flip. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Oh, and go owls. We have yeah. to give a L- shout Lorraine, out to Lorraine our- says if we would come up psychology, there'd be some really messed up people in the world. So. <laughs> I'm so glad it came up the other way. <laughs> you, you and me both. <laughs> um, we're, we're starting to run out of time, which, which means that we're going to have to have a part two someday. Because yeah, <laughs> I feel I, like I, I have love that. so many I more questions. That. What do you want your legacy to be? You know, gosh, I'm at an age now where you do start to think about that. And the last at least five or six years, I've devoted a lot of time to using the tools I've been able to develop over the years to take a good hard look at just how devastating issues like poverty and child maltreatment and hunger and those kinds of things are and how we might go about finding solutions to those things that that, that are really workable. And, you know, I hope that it's, as my career continues, I'm able to do some things that can make a mark in, in, in that area. I mean, it's always gratifying at this stage in my life. I mean, I can look around at stadiums that are there because of something I did or, you know, or, or, or you know, when you look at the, the where you've helped create jobs, you know, that's, that's families whose kids go to college. I mean, you know, that's and, and have better lives. I mean, that's all very, very gratifying at this stage of my life to look at those things. But I'm really hoping on some of these issues that are just really tough to deal with that over the next years, years of my life, I'm, and I hope I have still a lot of career left in me. I still have a lot of energy. So I, I'm hoping that I can do some things that can really make an impact on some of those things. 
Well, you already have made a huge impact, and I know that that will be your your legacy. It's already your living legacy right now. Let's finish with the question I, I ask all my guests because okay. I want to make sure you've gotten out what you want to get out. <laughs> uh, when you knew I was coming to interview you, is there anything that you thought, oh, I really hope that the listeners get to know this about either oil and gas industry or Priority Midland, anything we haven't covered yet? Well, we could have talked about baseball or barbecue or all kinds of important <laughs> things, Krista. But, or family. But, yeah, yeah, family, absolutely. I have, you know, my, my grandkids, we would talk about those all day. Absolutely. But, but you know, the, the one thing I, w- I would say to everyone is he, I know that there's a century-long culture here of boom and bust and boom and bust. And I know as, as we see the prices a little softer and some of the companies' earnings a little lower because prices are a little softer, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people start to say, oh, the bust is around the corner, that sort of thing. We really are in a totally different world. Think about this. We're producing twice as much oil as we ever produced. We produce some of that oil at, at $130 a barrel and some of that oil at $27 a barrel. Okay, so, I mean, keep in mind, this really is a different situation that we find ourselves in right now because of technology, because of cost, because of infrastructure, because of global developments, environmental issues, all sorts of things have combined to create that. This really is a a different time and a different place, and it takes a different thought process to approach it and just just be open to that and and look at it objectively and try to do the things that can help help us build some really great communities out here as we enjoy the bounty of what is truly a globally changing set of resources. I have so enjoyed this. Thank you, Dr. My Ray pleasure. Perryman, economist, and so much more. We could <laughs> we could go on and on of your list of accolades, but I really appreciate you spending this My time pleasure. with us today. We do want to let everyone know, if you want to know more about Priority Midland, of course, you can find them online. They're on LinkedIn. You can also go to PriorityMidland.com and, of course, read anything. Just Google Ray Perryman, Dr. <laughs> Ray Perryman, and read anything <laughs> that he has wrote, and you will learn so much. So thank you. I've really enjoyed this. My pleasure. We want to announce today's community MVP now, and it's the upcoming Basin Burnout, the fourth annual Permian Basin Community Event Basin Burnout Amateur Barbecue Cook-Off Competition and Music Festival fundraiser is actually a fundraiser for Hunts for Heroes, Real Thanks, and the Petroleum Museum. It is sponsored by the Permian Basin Association of Directional Drilling, and it will take place Saturday, September 14th from 12 to 8 p.m. Those of you here in the Basin know Hunt for Heroes is an amazing organization and real thanks. And we are just so supportive of them and appreciate them. That's why they are this week's community MVP. A reminder that today's show is sponsored by Baker Hughes, a GE company, inventing smarter ways to bring energy to the world. And again, I thank you so much for sitting down with us. This concludes this episode of Permian Perspective, the story behind the oil and gas leaders in the Permian Basin. Of course, remember my motto, dream big and believe in yourself, and you make it a great day. And here are the events on deck for August 2019. The Oil and Gas Conference, the 11th through the 14th at the Weston Denver downtown. SPE Subsea Well Intervention, 13th through the 15th at Galveston Island Convention Center in Galveston, Texas. Oilfield Helping Hands Summer Pistol Shoot, August 16th at the Texas Gun Club in Stafford, Texas. Uh, of course, Summer Napes coming up August 21st through 22nd at the George R. Brown Convention Center here in Houston, Texas. The IADC Well Control Conference, which is the 27th through the 28th at a Moody Gardens Hotel in Galveston, Texas. Oil and Gas Happy Hour in Tanzania, August 23rd 
6 to 10 p.m. at the Best Western CBD Hotel in Dar el Salaam, Tanzania. A PGICE 2019 will be held 27th through the 30th at Hilton Buenos Aires Hotel in Buenos Aires, Argentina, held, of course, 27th through the 30th. U.S.-based Oils and Lubricants Summit that will be held the 28th through the 29th in New Orleans, Louisiana. And then, of course, the Denver Happy Hour, which will be launching August 29th in Denver, Colorado at Liberty Oil Services. Hope to see you there. Tune in next week for another episode of Permian Perspective, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at www.oggn.com.